0: Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Paul here is piggybacking off of the end of Psalm 39 in speaking of us as elect exiles of the dispersion. We are elect, chosen by God, and yet we are exiles. We're we're citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, who yet live here in exile in this age. And we are of the dispersion. We are dispersed throughout this present age. We do not call one city on earth our home, but we are his people scattered throughout the the nations of this age. But Peter has more to say about what it means to be elect exiles. Indeed, verses 1 and 2 give us a Trinitarian structure of what it means to be elect exiles, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. There is nothing accidental, there is nothing mistaken about where God has you. What God has done, what he is doing in where you are, is part of his purpose for you and in you. And we are elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is setting us apart, making us holy, as the passage goes on to say, be holy as I am holy. This is what the Spirit is doing in us, is making us more and more holy as we are, as he is drawing near, drawing us near to God. And then we are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So notice God the Father chose us, God the Son sprinkles us with his blood that we might be his, and God the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, makes us holy, so that we might live as elect exiles. Now, it's not all that important that you sort of dig deep into trying to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. What is crucial is that you know and love the triune God, that you know him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you love him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this theme of being God's elect exiles is also found in our psalm, in Psalm 39. Uh, Psalm 39 itself is connected back to David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29, where David prays, for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. All mankind is a mere breath. Now, we'll see next time in Psalm 40 that that the incarnation of the word, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, is at the very heart of the conclusion of book one of the Psalms. And we're starting already in, in hearing echoes of, of Psalms 1 and 2 as we wrap up this first part of, this, of the book of Psalms. Psalms 1 through 41 are book one of the Psalms. And Psalms 1 and 2 have there'll be lots of echoes that we'll hear over the next few weeks as we look at these final three Psalms. And Psalm 39 begins moving us in this direction, even in the title of the psalm. Uh, to the choir master... Uh, Nearly half of the psalms in book one have this, uh, this direction to the choir master. It reminds us that the psalms were designed for the corporate worship of Israel. These are to be sung together as in the in the worship of God. But then here in Psalm 39, we we notice a new name in the title, Yeduthun. There are three Psalms that are to Yeduthun: Psalm 39, Psalm 62, and Psalm 77. Now who was Yeduthun and what does it mean that this, this is to Yeduthun? Well, Yeduthun was a music master in the time of David. First Chronicles 25 says that Yeduthun prophesied with the lyre the in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. So to say Psalm 39 is to Yeduthun, it suggests that it's connected to Yeduthun's prophesying. It's still a David psalm. Uh, it's a psalm of David, It's which is actually, it's the same preposition in all three cases. So it's it's to the choir master, to Yeduthun, a psalm to David. Uh, it's the same preposition in all three cases. So as to, that's one of the reasons why we, we don't think that it means written by this person, because in this case, there are two people who it's to, plus the choir master. But it's giving direction as to how to think about, this psalm is a David psalm. We should sing it, you might say, in David's voice. David is the voice of the psalm. And yet, it's also to Yedithun, which suggests that it's connected to Yedithun's prophesying. And the three psalms that are Yedithun psalms are all laments. and Which is interesting, given that it says that he prophesied with the lyre in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Because even in the midst of lament, there is, in fact, in all three of these laments, it's very clear that... We are, What? where do we turn? To whom do we speak when we are in a place of silence? When we are in a place where there's nobody to talk to about your situation? As Psalm 39 starts us off, and as 62 and 77 will also show us, we go to the Lord. He is the one to whom we come. So all of this introduction encourages us to think of Ourselves as the Levitical choir who sing Psalm 39 with our Lord Jesus along with one of his chief musicians, Yeduthun, and it's, it's part of what we are doing as we come before God in worship. Now, part of what makes all this interesting is that Psalm 39 is about as individual a lament as you get in Scripture. The pronoun my and I. Come, you know, it's my ways, my tongue, my mouth, my presence, my peace, my distress, my heart, my tongue. I'm very, feeling very much alone and by myself. Now, it's, this is a common feature in laments because a lament often focuses on me and my situation. But even as the prayer starts in verses 4 and 5... The language of my end, my days, my lifetime continues. And then there's a a brief comment about how this is true of all humanity before it returns to focusing on me. Verse 7, my hope, my transgressions, my mouth. Verse 12, my prayer, my tears, my father's. Because this is my problem. Yes, I can see my sin. I can certainly see my misery. And in all of this, I can't escape me. Ever notice that? <laughs> when you're in the midst of any situation, what's the what is the one constant in your experience? Me. I I, I can't escape myself. I'm stuck in a me-centered universe until I turn to you. Verse one sets an honorable starting point. I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. The psalmist recognizes that the the tongue is a fire, a world of evil that sets ablaze the whole body, to use the language of James. It is so easy to sin with your tongue. It is so easy to make a wasteland of your relationships through what you say. And both in terms of what you say intentionally, but then also sometimes the unintentional things that people hear even though you didn't think you said them. And particularly when you're in the wrong company, David says, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. You know that they will misconstrue what you say. They will twist your words to the harm of many. So David says, don't give them anything to work with. Now, we should be open and forthright people. We should be truth-tellers. But when you're dealing with those whom you know to be wicked, manipulative, abusive people who are trying to destroy others, yes, guard your mouth with a muzzle. Anything you say could wind up hurting yourself or others. But here's the problem. You can't be quiet forever. What do you do as, you're, as the fire burns within you? David says his distress got worse. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Now, what, what happens next when your heart becomes hot? When the fire is burning within you, what's your response? Often our response is to lash out at others. It's not what David does. David is showing us when our hearts are tuned properly to the Lord, then as your heart becomes hot, as the fire is burning, what, where does it take you? Where do you pour out your soul? David pours out his soul to the Lord. Now, there are lots of echoes here to the book of Job. Job sits in silence for for seven days with his friends, and then finally his heart burns within him, and he speaks. And verses 4 to 6 reflect very much on the sorts of themes that Job does. And Actually, in in Job chapter 3, this is Job's lament and complaint before God. Job does exactly what David says in, in Psalm 39. Because when we, we get, when we get overheated, the proper place to blow up is before the Lord. Notice, not against the Lord, but before him. There's a tendency nowadays for some people to say, "Ah, take out your anger on God, he can take it. Um, word of caution here. Just remember, he's God, we're not. <laughs> when we come to him, we should always come to him recognizing who he is. And the Psalms give us lots of great examples of how to pour out your soul before God, how an angry soul can speak properly before God. Because David does precisely that. As, his, as In his anger, he speaks, and he speaks well. So if this is how to speak well before God, let's learn how to do it and follow. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime as has nothing before you. I'm here today and gone tomorrow. There's something of a curious train of thought here. In verse 4, the psalmist asks God to instruct him regarding the transience of life. Make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. But then he begins to complain about the transience of life. I want to understand the truth about how fleeting I am. And yet, I am so fleeting, I don't have much time left to learn it. If you take too long in teaching me, I may never get there. And it's not just a problem for me. This is true for everyone. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Now, I want you to see what David's doing here. Because what he says is that every Adam is an able. All mankind is a mere breath. The word translated here, breath, is the word hebel, or vapor, which is used in Ecclesiastes. Hebel, hebel, everything is hebel. Vapor, vapor, everything is vapor. Some translations say meaningless, but it's not meaningless, it's vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It's also the name of Adam and Eve's son, Abel. It's the name. The name Abel is simply hebel. Vapor. Think of the story of Cain and Abel. Abel offered the better sacrifice. God accepted Abel's sacrifice. His brother Cain was jealous. Uh, So what did Cain do? He killed his brother. Abel's life was hebel, vapor, a mere breath. And now Psalm 39 says that all mankind, all Adam, stands as a mere breath. Every Adam is an Abel. The story of humanity is that Adam, the one whom God made after his own image, winds up becoming mere vapor, a breath that passes and is gone. Everyone dies, and not just dies, but everyone dies a miserable death. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for vapor, for Hebel, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. You may think that you are gathering up wealth for your children, but you don't know the future. This week I had a chance to see a massive conference center that was built 50 years ago for an evangelical Christian ministry empire. Well, that empire came crashing down. And now, what Happens to the hundreds of millions of dollars that were donated and invested into property and buildings and ministries? Surely for nothing, for Hebel, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Life is short, and then you die. My life is but a few hand-breaths long. Part of the reason I'm so convinced that the Adam and Abel contrast is intentional is because the Genesis 1 and 2 language, 1 through 4 really, language continues. When it says that man goes about as a shadow, the word man there is ish, the word used for male in Genesis 1. And the word shadow is the word translated image when it says that God made Adam after his image in Genesis 1. Surely, man walks about as an image. A shadow is an image. When you're walking along, your shadow looks like you in some respects. But given the language of Adam and Abel in this context, it's not an accident that we're talking about man as image. Because the image here is a darkened and clouded image, truly a shadow of his former self. Rather than being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and having dominion, man is in turmoil, an uproar, murmuring about hubble, murmuring about vapor and vanity. We raise a fuss about what? What is all the fuss about? Vapor. What are you striving for? And this is the turning point in Psalm 39 in verse 7. And now, O Lord for what do I wait? My hope is in you. In verses 7 through 11, we see my hope as well as my transgressions. And then we see your hand and your discipline. Finally, all of the me, me, me language is interrupted by you as you now speak. My hope is in you. How are you going to get out of your mess? No, no, no. My hope is in you. Wait, I know. I got a great idea. No, no. my hope is in you. Well, if I just do this, if I just try that, if I, here, I got the great thing. I know what to say. No, my hope is in you. When, when will that get through our thick skulls? My hope is in the Lord. I can't fix this. It's why verse 8 is so important to the song. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Notice that the central part of my problem is me. Oh, sure, the scorn of the fool is a very real thing, and please don't make me the scorn of the fool. But if you deliver me from my transgressions, then I can endure anything. Now, We've been seeing pretty consistently in this part of the Psalter that David's point is that if I am rightly related to God, what can man do to me? This is part of why we have a prayer of confession every week. It's why we need to confess our sins to God every day. Because my hope is in you, O Lord. And because of this, David goes back to silence. I am mute. I do not open my mouth for it is you who have done it. Why am I silent? Because you have acted. My situation, this really hard place where I am right now, is your doing. You, my God, who tenderly loves your own, you have laid upon me this suffering. And if you have done it, then it must be designed not for my destruction, but for my salvation." And so I wait patiently for my God. Patiently, yes. And in silence, and yet in a silence that still speaks to God. Remove, even as he says, I am mute. He still speaks to God and says, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Yeah, the hostility of God's hand toward his people, toward his own anointed one? Indeed. I mean, it, is, it is only if the Lord's hostility is poured out upon our Lord Jesus Christ that there is any hope of salvation for us. And that is why we need to recognize that God, the hostility of God's hand toward us is not designed to destroy us, but is God's discipline that He is correcting us and showing us that our rebellion against Him, our sin, is not going to help anything? When you are going the wrong direction, indeed, God is against you because He doesn't want you to go that way. He loves you. He's like, no, don't go that way. That way leads to death. And that's David's point in verse 11. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath, repeating that point. Let me just say this simply. When you make something more dear to you than God, then God gets jealous. The Lord our God is a jealous God, and his jealousy is a good thing. If your wife was flirting with all the guys, going out on dates with other men, and if you're not jealous about that, there's something very wrong with you. No, you shouldn't be saying, oh, yes, dear, you know, this whole you know, open marriage stuff that people do nowadays. Like, no, that's wrong. But when something, when some created thing becomes more dear to you than the one who made it, then God becomes jealous. And the next thing you know, That thing, that created thing, that thing that you love more than God will be consumed like a moth consumes woolen cloth. One commentator notes that verse 12 should remind us, verse 11 here rather, should remind us of the moth about which Jesus made a pointed remark. In the same breath, he also referred to the remorseless corrosion affected by rust. Only if we take this in utter seriousness will we have a cure against the desperate urge to keep up with the Joneses and against other urges that tear us apart. Only the view of eternal life, stressed in the Gospels, can resolve the agony that prompted Augustine to conclude restless are our souls until it finds its rest in you. Surely, all mankind is a mere breath. Every Adam is an able. Sin, misery, and death, vapor, and vanity is what characterizes us. That's why we need the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of righteous Abel. Hebrews 12 reminds us the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin because his blood is the blood of the new covenant, the blood that speaks a word of atonement and pardon. He is the one who brings us into the heavenly holy of holies where we behold the glory of the Lord. And that is where the cry of the sojourner in verse 12 must be heard. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. In the midst of your suffering and affliction, in the midst of what you are going through, cry out to the Lord and tell him, don't hold your peace. Don't sit there and do nothing. If, if we are moved by the tears of others, how much more the Lord God who created them. Hold not your peace at my tears. Truly, God has promised that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will remember your tears. But notice again and again, How the psalmist always brings his frustrations and complaints and laments to God in faith. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. I am a sojourner with you. Jesus said to a Gentile, Truly, I have not found such faith in all Israel. It was true also of David. I mean, if anybody could claim to be at home with God, you would think it was David. After all, God promised Israel the land and he gave them the inheritance. Sojourners are outsiders, foreigners. We are God's chosen people. But David says, I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. David recognizes that I am not really at home in the land. I am only truly at home with my God. You are strangers, aliens, foreigners. And David says, me too. It's not just that the, you know, we think of, oh, the Jews were the chosen people and the Gentiles were the strangers, foreigners. David says, no, I'm a sojourner too. This is why the Word had to become flesh and dwell among us. Because only when the Word sojourned with us could He join us to Himself that we might become children of God. Only when the eternal Son of God joined Himself to our nature could our nature become partakers, as Peter will say in 2 Peter, of the divine nature. And so David cries out to God, Stop looking at me! Now, that's a strange way to put it. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. We normally expect the psalmist to ask for the eyes of the Lord to be upon us. Doesn't that mean something good happens when God looks at you? Stop looking at me. Your gaze is... Pierces me to my soul, your holy eyes that are too pure to look upon sin. And therefore, when you look at me, you are chastening me and correcting me and purifying me. I can't take it anymore. Please look away from me that I may smile again before I die. Ever been there? Ever had the moment when you were like, okay, God, I've I've just had enough. I can't take this anymore. It's okay to say that. So long as you keep saying, my hope is in you. In Luke 5, Simon Peter will say, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Notice how he says it. Lord, I, got it. I know who you are. Lord, you are the Holy One. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. I mean, the presence of God is an amazing thing. And for a sinful man, it is a terrifying thing. Why does God discipline us? We are so frail and fleeting and we all die. What is God doing? He knows our frame. He knows our desperation and our weakness. So in your desperation, in your weakness, in your times of trouble and affliction, call out to him. Pour out your soul to him. He made you. He knows how you work and and what is more, indeed what is beyond our comprehension. He came in your flesh. He came in your weakness. He joined himself to your Affliction. He bore all our infirmities and carried all our sorrows. He did not content himself with knowing about our weakness and affliction as our Creator. He endured our weaknesses and afflictions when He came in our flesh, that He might bear in His own body our sin, our guilt, our weakness, our misery, that through His death He might bring you to Himself that he might join you to his life, that we might be his. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Make us know the end of our days, what is the measure of our time. Let us know how fleeting we are, for you have made our days a few hand breaths, and our lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely, we all stand as a mere breath. And now, O Lord, for what do we wait? Our hope is in you. Deliver us from our transgressions. Do not make us the scorn of the fool. And hear our prayer, O Lord. Give ear to our cry. Hold not your peace at our tears, for we are sojourners with you. Have mercy for Jesus' sake. Amen.